When the 70s started, Dracula was dead. Again. He'd first appeared on cinema screens in 1931, played by Bela Lugosi, and that trend rapidly got run into the ground as consecutively crappier movies squeezed the vampire franchise dry. Then, he got revived in 1958 when Hammer Films' Christopher Lee gave the world a savvier, sexier vampire. And that trend got rapidly run into the ground over the course of the 60s as the times moved on, but Hammer Films squeezed the franchise dry. By the early 70s, Penny Ante producers saw how much money Hammer's early vampire movies were still making, and so they finally decided to jump on board the death train. All aboard! Just in time for its terminal ride. Between 1964 and 1974, audiences who wanted vampires could choose from Billy the Kid meets Dracula, Batman fights Dracula, the Fearless Vampire Killers, or Pardon me, but your teeth are in my neck, Dracula, the Dirty Old Man, Dracula and the Boys, a gay porno version of Dracula, Sex and the Single Vampire, in which a bunch of swingers break into Count Spatula's home for sex. An indecent proposal Dracula directed by Sharon Tate's acting teacher called Guess what happened to Count Dracula? The horny vampire, Succula, Dragula, Old Dracula, Count Erotica, Vampire, and Defula. The first movie made in American Sign Language. Later audiences would get Spermula. Bang! Right in the face. No wonder Christopher Lee felt like a schmuck every time he dragged out his Dracula drag and tied on the old cape. No wonder Warner Brothers shelved their Hammer Films co-productions and sold them off to sub-distributors for parts years later. In the 70s, Dracula was as dead as disco was alive. Vampires were a joke, a risible novelty, a deceased doodad, gone daddy gone, dearly departed. But Dracula cannot die. So if he was dead on the big screen, there was one way he could survive. By getting very, very small. And leaving movie screens behind. Before returning to them in triumph and taking vampire films in a bold new direction. And that is the story we'll tell today. <laughs> Welcome. Super scary haunted homeschool. <laughs> Dan Curtis was a sales executive for NBC who spent 10 years of his life producing golf programs for television. Arnold Palmer Gary Palmer Challenge Golf? CBS Golf Gold Classic? All your favorite golf shows. Curtis never thought there might be more to life than golf, and to a friend of his at ABC suggested he develop a daytime TV show that wasn't about golf, and the friend set a meeting for him to pitch whatever Dan's big idea would be. The only problem? Dan didn't have any big ideas. Then, the night before our meeting was scheduled to take place, I had a dream. In my dream, a girl was sitting on a train, reading a letter, going up the New England coast to a job. She was a governess. She got off the train track at a dark, 
deserted railway station. And then I woke up. At first it seemed very intriguing. But after I took a shower, I decided it was lousy. That morning I kind of mentioned it to ABC. And within four days we had a deal. Dark Shadows premiered on Monday, June 27, 1966, at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Central, and the ratings sucked. ABC had committed to 26 weeks of this experimental daytime soap, and as it dragged itself towards the date of its inevitable mercy killing, Dan's kids suggested to their disheartened dad, Hey, if you're getting canceled anyways, Daddy-O, why not make a show scary? Curtis figured, why the hell not? And wrote in a scene of a ghost appearing on the stairs. What Dan hadn't counted on was that Dark Shadows aired at 4 p.m., which was perfect timing for kids coming home from school. And so it had attracted a huge crowd of teenage fans. When that ghost appeared, well, kids love horror, and the ratings started to creep up. Around episode 202, Curtis remembered his childhood phobia. Vampires. So, he sent a character into the family crypt where they released... Barnabas Collins. Played by the Canadian actor Jonathan Frid, Barnabas Collins was a whole new breed of vampire. His name came from a tombstone one of the producers had seen in Flushing, New York, and his backstory was that he'd been cursed to become a vampire by a witch... Curtis planned to kill him off after a few episodes, but Frid started getting upwards of 5,000 fan letters every week. Dark Shadows became one of ABC's earliest hits. In fact, one of ABC's biggest hits, alongside Let's Make a Deal. And it aired 1,245 episodes and spawned a line of 34 tie-in novels, most of them starring Barnabas Collins. No one besides Christopher Lee had done so much to rehabilitate the image of the vampire as 42-year-old Fred. He wanted to play, quote, all the subtle psychological problems that come from being a vampire. As he said to the Chicago Tribune, Barnabas is dignified and has a lot of old-world charm, which is what women like. But he has this terrible affliction which takes over, and then he becomes thoroughly unpredictable. Christopher Lee made Dracula young and sexy and powerful and virile, but also very, very evil. Frid made his vampire gothic and cursed and romantic and not so much evil as misunderstood. He was a soap opera vampire. Go on a date with Lee's vampire and he'd make you feel real good but then tear out your throat and you'd probably love it while he did it. Go on a date with Barnabas Collins and you would hear a lot about his feelings. And he'd listen a lot to yours. In 1971, ABC hit a rating slump, and executives decided that their juvenile audiences, who were the lifeblood of Dark Shadows, couldn't really influence household purchases because they're too young to buy anything, so why cater to them? Besides, it was cheaper to produce talk shows and game shows instead of a gothic soap opera. So, on April 2nd, 1971, Dark Shadows came to an end. But Dracula never dies. He had been killed on the big screen and resurrected on the small screen. Now he had died on the small screen, so it seemed like there was only one place left for him to go. June 50th, 1951. 
John Carradine, who'd already played Dracula twice on film, appeared on stage in yet another revival of Hamilton Dean's creaky old stage show version of Dracula, the one that had been adapted into 1931's Dracula by Universal. This time, the run took place at Chicago's Drury Lane Theater. It did okay, and two weeks later, the show moved to Detroit. On opening night, everything went wrong, from miscues to missing props to wardrobe malfunctions to muffed lines. At the end of the show, Carradine wandered out in front of the curtain and said to the audience, If I'm alive, what am I doing here? On the other hand, if I'm dead, then why do I have to wee-wee? The audience went nuts. His bit became famous, and he'd reprise it every night of the show's sold-out run, which suddenly started playing Dracula as a comedy. Comedy Draculas became hot on stage. Dearest Dracula was a 15-song musical burlesque, and Fangs Ain't What They Used To Be delivered more vampire jokes, mostly terrible puns, than any audience should be expected to sit through without someone being accused of war crimes. Then came I'm Sorry The Bridge Is Out, You'll Have To Spend The Night, which was sort of like a less funny version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show with less sex and worse music. And then after Stage West in Springfield, Massachusetts lost the rights to perform the Hamilton Dean stage version of Dracula, Ted Tiller wrote them Count Dracula, a spoof of Dean's show. The New York Times said it was of no account, an arch and verbose copy of the real thing. And they ended their review with a hearty, Who cares? As Tiller's version proved about the New York Times, Who cares? Because his version played standing room only for its entire run. It got picked up by the theatrical publisher Samuel French, had 12 repertory engagements in England, toured Tasmania and New Zealand, and appeared over and over and over again in summer stock, dinner theater, and even more rep productions. Spoof it, parody it, do whatever you want to it. Hamilton Dean's stage play of Dracula was indestructible. In one form or another, it had been running for 49 years before the Nantucket Stage Company decided to revive it for their inaugural season in July 1973. Housed in a tiny 200-seat theater with a 9-foot stage built in a converted pool house, director John Wolpe realized that to make his show work, he needed some sparkle, something fresh that would engage audiences in this tiny little music box of a theater. So, he commissioned artist Edward Gorey, the master of the gloom aesthetic, with his stark, gothic, tongue-in-cheek drawings scratched out of thousands of thin, wavering lines, to design the set. Gorey delivered sets like nothing anyone had ever seen. Simple, graphic, black-and-white drawings that covered the stage, each one featuring a single touch of red. Audiences loved it, and the show moved to New York City's Cherry Lane Theater that October. Then, slowly but surely, Broadway beckoned. There were rumors that the production would star matinee stud, tab, hunter, and supermodel Twiggy. But then, a young up-and-comer with hypnotic eyes swooped into view. Frank Langella, in his late 30s, six foot four, thin, angular, and plausibly bisexual. He exuded the essence of unrefined horniness. When his memoir came out in 2012, the New York Times hyperventilated, 
Langella's book celebrated sluttiness as a worthy, even noble way of life. There was so much happy sexuality in this book that reading it was like being flirted with for a whole party by the hottest person in the room. Imagine the hottest person in the room telling you he was lonely and immortal and he wanted to suck your blood. Langella was young, with a few movies and a Tony Award or two, but he hadn't broken through. He hadn't clicked with audiences yet. He needed that part where actor met role and electrified critics like Al Pacino in The Indian Wants the Bronx or Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire. But it was a long, long way from Tennessee Williams to Hamilton Dean. Langella didn't think a shop-worn part like Dracula that was a cornerstone of summer rep houses in the sticks had anything to offer. He also may not have wanted the part because the version was going to be modernized, so Dracula lived in a penthouse and cruised Bloomingdale's for fresh necks to bite. He may also not have wanted it because the head of Kennedy Center told him that Dracula was overexposed, corny, and Langella doing the role on Broadway was the most ridiculous idea he'd ever heard. But the role had something. It had lured Bella Lugosi. It had lured Christopher Lee. And now, it lured Frank Langella. If you didn't get trapped by the part, Count Dracula could be a rung on the ladder to fame. Ever cautious, Langella had conditions. No Bloomingdale's, he wouldn't wear the red contact lenses the producers requested, and he would not wear fangs. The producers agreed. And exactly 50 years after it premiered the first time on Broadway, Hamilton Dean's Dracula returned to Broadway. Like Jonathan Frid, Frank Langella saw Dracula as a gothic hero, not a villain. He dug deep to locate a character he could play rather than a special effect he could embody, retaining Christopher Lee's physicality but bringing the romance in the role to the foreground. I don't think of him as evil. I really don't. Um, it's a terrifying. It's meant to, to not to terrorize, but to add a certain degree of terror to your visual enjoyment of it. But it's basically about a man who falls in love with a woman and wants to take her through the ages with him. What would it be like to be a man who wants to live a life as decently as he can, but who has a curse that he can't really share with anyone else? And to approach it from that point of view, rather than just starting out with, I'm a vampire, and here I come to suck your blood. In an interview with the New York Times, Langella praised his own vampiric lovemaking prowess in the play's big sex scene. People still tell me it's the hottest scene in years. Actually, I can't think of a woman who doesn't like to be taken, if it's with love. If you take a woman by force and at the same time gently, you can't fail. The audience was ready to be taken by force, but at the same time gently. The reviews were raves. The tickets sold out. The merch flew off the shelves. Even a knockoff version that opened down at the Cherry Lane Theater offering a soap opera star playing Dracula at a much lower ticket price ran for 735 performances. Langella stayed on Broadway for over a year, only leaving to do the movie version of the play. Raul Julia took over from Langella, and the show would run until 1980, closing after 925 performances, which was 650 more than Hamilton Dean's original Broadway run, and it would spawn two national touring companies. Excuse me, I'd like you to uh, 
come with me for a moment and step into the sidebar. Four years after the Dracula run on Broadway ended, Dracula appeared as a Christmas show at the Half Moon Theatre in London, with future Doctor Who Peter Capaldi playing Jonathan Harker, and a relatively unknown named Daniel Day-Lewis playing the Count. Day-Lewis played the role with his hair dyed blonde because he thought it gave Dracula a striking presence on stage, and when producers saw it, they asked him to keep his hair that way with the black roots growing out for their movie, My Beautiful Laundrette, which turned out to be Day-Lewis's breakthrough role that launched his career. And he got there by playing Dracula. Thank you. Please, this way to step out of the sidebar. Frank Langella played Dracula as a man calm, cool, and in control of absolutely everything, a man who was endlessly amused by his own aristocratic pretensions, a man who wanted to romance the lady. And the part entered the zeitgeist, scoring an outsized impact well beyond Broadway ticket holders as Langella's vampire appeared in an elegant motion picture adaptation in 1979 and in the near-ubiquitous New York City tourism ad, I Heart New York, that aired continuously on television stations across the country. I love New York, especially in the evening. But Langella's 1979 Dracula movie was overshadowed on its release by Dracula's return to the big screen in a revolutionary performance that had a bigger impact on the character of the Count than anyone since Christopher Lee 20 years before. And it all happened because of a guy riding a motorcycle who crashed a lot. When I helped design my line of AMF Roadmaster wheels, I said make them red, white, and blue to bear my name, Evil Knievel. You can see they're built solid, flashy, and hip, and the bikes come with these safety tips that bear my name, Evil Knievel. So if your kids are thrilled, I know just how they feel. These wheels are real exciting and bear my name, Evil Knievel. Evil Knievel was a motorcycle-riding stuntman from Montana whose daredevil jumps broke his bones, made him rich, and eventually turned him into a successful toy from Mattel. This is Evil Knievel and the Evil Knievel shock-absorbing stunt cycle. You can make him do wheelies, backstands, even mid-air somersaults. And for that big jump, here's Evil, up and over that four-foot ditch. Evil Knievel, sold separately or with the Evil Knievel stunt cycle from Ideal. But that was later. In the late 1960s, he was bumming around the country with his stunt team, jumping cars on his motorcycle, and mostly crashing. Badly. When he arrived in Las Vegas to see a fight, he caught a glimpse of the fountains at Caesar's Palace and decided that nothing would make him more famous than jumping his motorcycle over them. Once that happened, Evil was convinced, his big payday would finally arrive. So, he conned his way into permission from the casino for his stupid, stupid stunt, pretending to be three different lawyers and an ABC executive over the phone. Then, he did the jump, and... 
crushed his pelvis, his femur, broke his hip, his wrist, and broke both ankles. While he was in the hospital recovering, an actor named George Hamilton came to visit. Hamilton had been a teen heartthrob with a deep, deep tan, but he wanted more control over his career and decided he needed to produce his own material. He was working on a movie about rodeo riders when he heard about evil Caesar's Palace crash-up, and he decided then and there that nothing made more career sense than to produce and star in a movie about a man who kept crashing his motorcycle. Evil can evil. It didn't go well. The movie came out and washed out, and it took Hamilton's career with it. He spent the 70s doing television and playing off his good looks in low-budget movies like Once is not enough. The happy hooker goes to Washington. Sex death. What sustained George Hamilton during this dark and dreary decade was a dream. A dream he nurtured secretly in his heart. A dream a lot of B-list leading men apparently nurture when they feel trapped by their fabulous faces. George Hamilton wanted to be funny. But no one would hire George Hamilton for his sense of humor. They wanted that tan, those teeth, that hair, that profile. But George Hamilton had an idea for a comedy he thought was crazy enough that it just might work. Slowly, he developed a script with the screenwriter of The Happy Hooker Goes to Washington. Slowly, he raised the money, dollar by dollar, a chunk of it coming from an Indiana shopping mall baron. And finally, he had the entire $3.3 million budget. Production began in New York City on June 13, 1978. The producer, director, and star carefully watching the schedule, watching the shooting days, watching every penny, watching to make sure they didn't go over. They wouldn't get another chance. The movie came together in the editing room, and a couple of studios showed interest in distributing it, but none of them could guarantee it would land in theaters before the big shark in the water, the giant Dracula picture coming down the pike, the one George Hamilton knew would swamp his tiny little makeshift movie, the big-budget John Badham adaptation. Dracula, starring Frank Langella. Only one scrappy little studio said they could get Hamilton's movie onto screens first. Tiny Little AIP, the little outfit behind a previous vampire hit known as Blackula. And so, on April 6, 1979, Love at First Bite opened in theaters four months before Frank Langella's picture premiered. Hamilton had everything riding on his Dracula comedy with himself in the leading role. He was going to take it on the chin if anything went wrong, and he was worried everything was going to go wrong. He only had four months to earn his investors $3.3 million back before Langella's movie came out and crushed him like King Kong stepping on Bambi. Hamilton knew this was his shot. He worked himself to the bone promoting love at first bite. He took a horse-drawn hearse to Bella Lugosi's star on the Broadway Walk of Fame and left a wreath of white lilies. He signed autographs at all-day signing sessions at movie theaters and shopping malls again and again and again while dressed as the Count. But it turned out, love at first bite was not 
a hit. It was a phenomenon. 24 days into its release, Byte had grossed $8.3 million. Seven months later, it was still running and had earned an insanity-inducing $46 million. By the time Langella's Dracula came out, no one cared. After making all the money in America and turning his count into a pop culture persona, Hamilton got on a plane and did it all over again in Europe, then Australia. Suddenly, his asking price was the big boy asking price, $1 million and 10% of the gross. And George Hamilton deserved every single penny of it. If you haven't seen Love at First Bite, I, I have a hard time recommending it without reservation. It is a corny 1970s sex comedy, and it's got a lot of places where it has not aged well. But if you can stomach the lows, the highs are actually still really, really funny. And they get funnier as the movie gets underway. And it even gets kind of genuinely romantic. Shot with all the care of a television sitcom, Love at First Bite is full of meta-jokes. We begin as Dracula is driven from his castle by a bunch of communist functionaries from the Romanian government who plan on turning it into a training camp for their Olympic team. They tell the Count, You gather your aristocratic shit together and split! Exiled, Dracula emerges from his castle to confront a torch-wielding mob of townspeople right out of a Hammer film as melodramatic violin music shrieks on the soundtrack, played by an actual melodramatic violinist standing just to one side of Dracula that you see on screen. It feels like a cruder, more rough-and-ready version of Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein, which had come out five years before. But George Hamilton's Dracula has one goal in the movie— a goal that had just started creeping into view in the 70s, and it would have been unthinkable to Bram Stoker's Dracula or even Bela Lugosi's. It had just appeared in 1958 a bit with Christopher Lee's Dracula, had become more present with the soap opera stud Barnabas Collins, and finally reached its full bloom with Frank Langella's sexy Broadway hero. Whatever Master wants, Master gets. Ah. <sighs> There she is, Cindy Sundar. I tell you, Rinfield, every time I see her, I'm more sure it's her. The only woman I have ever loved. Please, Master, that's the same thing you said about the Countess de Montespan in 1672. That was sex, Rinfield. This is love. George Hamilton's Dracula longs for love. And he's chosen Cindy Sondheim, a model he's only ever seen in fashion magazines he subscribes to in Transylvania. And so, after his exile from his castle, Dracula and Renfield head to New York City, determined to pitch woo to a woman he's never met. This does not bode well. And you do think there's a lot of toxic masculinity coming up. And also what doesn't bode well is Artie Johnson's tired slab of ham performance as Renfield. And when they arrive in New York City and the Count's coffin gets mixed up with the black man's coffin, the leaden race jokes and the secondhand black stereotypes are really, really ugh. But just when you feel like things are hitting the point of no return, the Count meets Cindy Sondheim. And instead of getting ickier... Love at First Bite redeems itself and actually gets kind of smart. 
While promoting Love at First Bite and giving 12 interviews a day, George Hamilton often said things like, I know what women want and don't want, and so did the Count. Aside from his strange thirst for blood, he is exactly what every woman wants in a man. Strength, aggression, and protectiveness. Every woman fantasizes about a dark stranger who manacles her. Dracula represents the ultimate romantic figure. Women don't have fantasies about marching with Vanessa Redgrave which manages to be both patronizing and creepy at the same time. But no matter what George Hamilton said in interview, that is not how the movie plays. The 70s were the era of the new man, a sensitive man, a softer man, a man perhaps best embodied by squishy, lovable actors like Alan Alda. Men who ate quiche, men who treated women like equals, men who dated women with careers. But there was something off about these guys, especially in their media portrayals, where their sensitivity and female positivity often felt like a thin veneer, barely concealing a complete contempt for the opposite sex. These were men who loved women to have equality because... It seemed to mean they no longer had to hold open doors. They didn't have to sleep over after sex. They could split the check. They could just put their pants on and run when they were done. Their support of women felt less like real feminism and more like an excuse to stop making an effort, a reason they could stop pretending to care. Love at First Bite took a look at men in the 70s and said something was missing. Something like romance. Old-fashioned manners. Basic respect. The movie depicts the modern world as an endless hassle full of lost luggage, cab drivers ripping you off, people giving you a hard time. When Dracula finds Cindy Sondheim, she's wearing a frazzled, permed-out wig and sitting in a discotheque booth making endless telephone calls. She thinks he's cute and invites him back to her place for a quick bang. No thank you. He leads her onto the dance floor and into an impeccable disco cha-cha. As Dracula dips Cindy floor deep at the end, she turns to him and grins with genuine, blissed-out pleasure, the first time she's actually smiling in the film. And in response, the Count simply raises a single eyebrow. Who doesn't want to date a dude this cool? Back at her apartment, Cindy chugs champagne in preparation for some no-string, zipless sex, pops a pill, and when she's ready for a bedroom rumba, she can't find Dracula anywhere. Instead, he's standing out on her balcony, being all mysterious and romantic in the night. She brings him some champagne and a joint. It's Maui Wowie, she says. Really heavy shit. And then... The movie totally reinvents one of Dracula's corniest lines as Hamilton looks her up and down and coolly says, I do not drink wine. Oh. And I do not smoke shit. Dracula wants eternal commitment in a world where Sondheim has convinced herself that quick hookups are what she really wants. She says friends with benefits and no commitments. He asks for eternal love. She's bought into a shallow existence where she has to drug herself to get through the day, get stoned to have sex, and wear a wig to make herself look the way men want her to look. Dracula offers something else. 
You long for something wild and overpowering, he says, and who doesn't, really? Don't we all want to be swept away? On the one hand, being swept away does sound dangerous. But this Count is the one truly safe man in the movie because he is a model of total self-control. He won't even sleep with Cindy on the first date. Later, she offers him a quickie. No, he says, no quickie. With you, it is always a longie. Who wouldn't melt? Cindy's boyfriend, Dr. Jeffrey Rosenberg, is also her therapist, and he and Cindy share dinner, the movies, the occasional sex to relieve anxieties. He's jealous that she's taking the count seriously, even though Jeffrey still refuses to commit to a relationship after nine years of casual sex. But now, confronted by this Lothario from the old country, he becomes enraged, consumed with jealousy. And of course, he turns out to be Dr. Van Helsing's grandson. You can't tell really in the movie if he's obsessed with exposing and destroying Dracula because the Count is the embodiment of pure evil and he's genetically predisposed to drive a stake through his heart, or because the Count turns out to be a better boyfriend. Towards the end of the movie, Renfield tells Jeffrey the Count's escape plans, much to Cindy's astonishment. Renfield, why did you tell him that? Because the bad guys always tell the good guys what they're going to do just before they try to kill them. He's absolutely right, Miss Cindy. Uh, that's part of the rules. But in this case, we are the good guys. In interviews, Hamilton and even Frank Langella come across as heavy breathers, mansplaining to women what they really wanted, rejecting the image of the sensitive man a bit too violently, and swinging to the absolute opposite extreme, unable to keep their hands to themselves. But their press tours are not their performances on film. Langella's Count Dracula truly is charming and sensitive in the movie, not the stereotype of sensitivity that men were performing in the late 70s, but someone actually listening and responding to what a woman says, taking her seriously when she tells him what she wants. Hamilton does it too in Love at First Bite, as Cindy sighs at one point summing up the entire film. Good, evil, moral, immoral, none of it matters compared to someone truly seeing you. And it's delightfully mutual. When eventually they have sex, Cindy gives the Count a love bite on the side of his neck and he swoons in ecstasy. Finally, after 712 years, to have someone bite me again. Of course, vampire love is always fated to fail because vampires are undead creatures of the night and to keep their lovers close, they must transform them into soulless bloodsuckers like themselves, damned to an eternal hell of immorality and murder. But in Love at First Bite, becoming a vampire isn't a deep moral quandary. It's more a matter of convenience. As Cindy and the Count escape the police and Jeffrey, they head for JFK Airport, trying to catch a flight to Jamaica. Their coffins make the plane, but they miss it. On the runway, Dracula and Cindy run after the plane as fast as they can, but it's too far away. Behind them, the police and Jeffrey are closing in fast. So, Dracula offers to bite Cindy a third time, which will transform her, according to the lore of the movie, into a vampire. But that way, they can both become bats and catch up with the plane, which has their luggage on board. There is another way. The third bite. But I don't know, Vladimir. I mean, you're... You're a beautiful lover, and you're a great dancer. You go through doors great. Of course, I don't know how you're going to look as a bad. I just don't know what to do. You'll have to tell me what to do. You must make the choice. 
No. That's for me. In a world without romance, it is better to be dead. Cindy! Cindy! I'm pretty sure I love you! What am I saying? Of course I love you! I think... Do it now, And as the two of them turn into bats and fly away into the moonset, Dracula informs Cindy that she can never see sunlight again. Oh, she says, not phased in the slightest. That's all right. I never could get my shit together before seven anyway. It was a long, goofy road to get here. But, finally, love at first bite got on board the train that would take vampirism from the first half of the 20th century into the second half of the 20th century. George Hamilton's movie boiled down where vampire films had been going since Christopher Lee played Dracula in 1958. It took the essence of that, irradiated it with hard comedy, and lit it slowly pick up speed, evolving into its ultimate form. This Count Dracula was the hero the 70s needed. He didn't murder women. He listened to them and offered them an alternative they could take freely and of their own will. After all, wouldn't it be better to be undead than to live in a totally transactional world without romance, where commitment doesn't exist, where sex is always a quickie and nothing is ever a longie? Dracula had finally completed his voyage. He had transformed totally into a truly romantic hero. And that is who he would remain for the end of the 20th century. Vampires were still about disease, but now it was the modern world that was sick. Vampirism had become the cure. In this episode of Super Scary Haunted Homeschool, Michael Zaccardi played Frank Langella. Super Scary Haunted Home School is produced by Chris LaMartina and Mike C. Walls. It's edited and engineered by Mike C. Walls, and it's written and narrated by me, Grady Hendricks. <laughs>